to this week's episode of Wild Wild What the Facts, the podcast where two friends talk about the crazy, hilarious, and surprising things that have happened in history. I'm Lauren. I'm Jared. And Alex is here in spirit. Yeah, Alex is not here again today, but he will be listening to this, so hey, Alex. But he is part of this team, gosh darn it. Yeah, he's, he's here in spirit and health. I don't know. Um, what? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I might still be on the struggle bus. It's fine. We got I'm, this. I'm going to start telling this. people, like, may you go in spirit and help. That could be, like, some weird indoctrinated thing in my past. I don't know. It just came <laughs> to me. <laughs> anyway. What's up? Oh, hey. So we got a cool email today. Oh, yeah. I was pretty excited about, and mostly it's all because of one person, probably. But we are 194, so we're in the top 200 of the history podcast in Canada. At least at one point we were. I think, no, it sent us today. No, well, how dynamic is that list? I don't know, but we have... A fr- well, I have a friend named Gail. Hi, Gail, who Hi, Gail. shared her shared our podcast with. She's Canadian. Um, she's awesome. She lives just outside of Vancouver, and she shared our podcast with a bunch of her friends. And we got a bunch more Canadian listeners. So hi, and welcome, and thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. And so we were in the top two hundred of the history podcast in Canada. We appreciate you folks. Yeah, it's pretty awesome and exciting. I mean, it probably means there's not a lot of history podcasts in Canada, <laughs> but um, we are top 200. So, cool. There's like 195. <laughs> <laughs> We're 194. I mean, I'll take it. I'll take it. Not for sure. <laughs> beat out one, okay? Or I mean, no. there's only 194. <laughs> or there's only 194. Or even worse, we'll there's it. actually 193. <laughs> and they're just leaving that they're just leaving yeah just leaving in our thinking. hearts and souls we're gonna imagine there's thousands and we made the top 200 so that's kind of exciting i also yeah. when i got the alert for the email i thought someone was like sending us an email that was like i have a story for you or something and i got super excited for that and it, he's, he's then i was let down and then i got excited again so sprung to action like batman yeah. So I have the alerts turned on my phone. So if you email us, I will know. I do too, within... actually. Oh, okay. I just, I was, I had a busy day. So I was oh. my phone too much. Fair enough. Yeah. But yeah, that's exciting news. Anything else exciting to report? Um, it is March. It is and March. people that went to the university that I went to enjoy March for basketball. So this I is am true. super, super, super excited for that. Except for, uh, you're not 
doing too hot this year. Well, I have a backup school and a legit reason to be able to root for them. So if KU gets bounced, I have this other school. So I'm happy about it. I'm technically an Arizona fan most of the time. I haven't paid attention to it much. And that makes lots of KU people very upset when I say that because in the 90s, KU beat or Arizona beat KU in the final four or something. And I've heard lots about that when I worked at the bar, but I haven't paid attention because last year or the year before, I don't know, they couldn't really go to the tournament. And so I stopped really paying attention. Oh, gotcha. Cause they were in trouble. Yeah. Those Arizona schools. Yeah. They get into it. So, well, I mean, I mean, when they when... were the ones who started that whole fiasco of schools that had found out that they paid people oh yeah yeah everyone does it yeah it's true spoilers (laughs) so but march madness actually when does this come out let's look well we have the conference tournaments this week i think Mm. or next week so next week this one actually won't come out until after the tournament oh so you're welcome Yay. for a dated conversation, folks. Yeah, hopefully the tournament went well for whatever school you root for. No, hopefully it went well if you went to KU. Yeah, hopefully it went really well if you're, yeah, for KU. All of you other people, I'm sorry, not sorry. I hope your team does. Yeah, I mostly just don't want to have an angry husband slash or any of my friends. So I hope KU does well. There you go. That's the sur- that's the survivalist in you. What are we talking about today? <laughs> we are talking about times in history that have restored our faith in humanity. I think both of us really needed this this week. So yeah, no, for sure. Have, yeah, I definitely did, and I have a really cool story that I think will also make some of our new Canadian fans happy because it's a Canadian story. So. Look at you with the fan service. I didn't even mean to. It just worked out that way, and I'm okay with it. You didn't mean to, wink, wink. Tech, yeah, we'll go with that. Anyway, Jared's going first today. I would call mine humanity maintained. Humanity what? Maintained. Maintained, got it. So I don't know if you know about this. But in the 60s and the 80s, the world became, uh, came really close to ending. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you about two specific moments where that happened. And there were two men that put aside very, 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 very rabid geopolitical hostility between the United States and the USSR and made two calls that saved the world. Okay. Let's hear it. So I, originally I was going to do a little lighter, you know, story, but I think that these two men deserve to be known. And you can never just give us something. You have to make us sad at some point. I feel like that's that's what you do. There's nothing really sad about this. <laughs> it's just it's it was intense. So okay. as you all know, after World War II, former allies, the United States of America and the Soviet Union, didn't really like each other much. Really? No. Oh. And things got really, 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 really bad. So I'm going to tell you. 
as I said, about two of these. And I'm going to start out of chronological order. So we're going to start in the 80s. Okay. So this particular event takes place on September 26th of 1983. Okay. The nuclear early warning system in Russia reported a launch of an ICBM and four more immediately following from the U.S. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. So That's, That's a scary alert. Right. Uh, but instead of reacting to, as you just said, a clearly terrifying situation, yeah. the hero of this story, his name was Stanislav Petrov. He he sat back, considered the facts, and he made a call that prevented nuclear war. I hope that one day I am level-headed enough to think logically and not respond on emotion. I mean, but like... Yeah, when someone hits your car, or yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> when you see nuclear missiles flying yeah, towards your fair. country, like what kind of deep breathing exercises do you do to keep your heart rate down? Uh, I mean, maybe you just accept your fate at that point, and you're like, no one has to know. It's fine. And and I'll I'll get into his logic a little bit here. Okay. Um, so it is. It makes sense, but again, in the whole frame of there's potentially world-ending things coming your way, yeah, it's just insane. So, Stanislav was born September 7th of 1939 near Vladivostok. By the way, I do not speak Russian, Oh, and so I apologize (laughs) for any Russian mispronunciations in this tale, because Russian is very difficult for me. We're dumb Americans. (laughs) But that particular town is on the Alaska side of Russia, just so you know. Can Sarah Palin see it from her porch? Probably. Okay, got it. She has to use the telescope. Okay. Or her high-powered rifle scope. Yeah, perfect. So... His father was a fighter pilot during World War II, and his mom was a nurse. Okay. He, he went to school in Kiev at the Kiev Higher Engineering Radio Technical College and graduated in 72. And mm-hmm. he later went on to join the Soviet Air Defense Forces. Early, mm-hmm. in the, early in the 70s, he was assigned to a unit that oversaw the new early detection system. The new system was tasked with detecting nuclear launches from NATO countries. Okay. That makes sense. Yes. So that kind of catches you up to, Mm -hmm. y'all are wondering how I got here. Yeah. So back to September 26th of 83, Stanislav at this time was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defense Forces and the officer on duty at the Serpukov 15 bunker near Moscow. I'm going to be so excited to hear this Russian this whole time. I already know. (laughs) So this was the location of the Early Warning Systems Command Center for the Early Warning Systems Satellites, codenamed OKO or OKO. It's just OKO. Um, if you know a better way to pronounce that, please let me know. And that all it's rhymed. Yoko Ono. That rhymed. I didn't mean it. And I know it's not Yoko. Ono. She just <laughs> she just had a birthday. I think. Anywho, oh. uh, Stanislav was in charge of monitoring the network and alerting his superiors to any missile attacks against the Soviet Union. Okay. Pretty straightforward. And the standard operating procedure in the event of an attack was to... Okay. <laughs> this is messed up. So, the Russian SOP, if okay. U.S. launched nukes at Russia, was, well, 
we don't want them to destroy us without us destroying them. So they would just launch everything at us for yeah. something called mutual assured destruction. Okay. Lovely. So the quote-unquote attack was detected around midnight, and it was said initially to be a single ICBM, that's an intercontinental ballistic missile, that was launched from the U.S. Stanislav mm -hmm. thought this was an error because a preemptive U.S. strike would involve all the missiles, not one, all of them. In, in order to disable the possibility for a counterattack. So they How knew... How many is all? Hundreds. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, That's a lot. Yeah, I mean, you're loaded for bear in this situation. Got it. So he was saying, or he immediately thought of this, which was, thank goodness he did. And then what's even more significant is the system's reliability had been brought into question before. Okay. But... You know, Soviet Russia, when things don't work quite right, but it's one of these grandiose, oh, this is our early warning detection system, they're going to brush some details under the bed. Yeah. But he was still taking this into account. So ultimately, he determined that this was just a false alarm, and it was later confirmed when... They didn't explode? Exactly. Yeah. So... And he was still alive a couple minutes later. Right. And then <laughs> later, there were four more quote-unquote, missiles sighted coming in, which he also determined to be false alarm. So, I'm quoting, and I read a lot of this from Wikipedia. Slap Jared on the wrist. Yeah. But I'm, I'm going to quote it directly. It says, it was subsequently determined that the false alarms were caused by a rare alignment of sunlight on high-altitude clouds, and the satellites, this is a crazy word, millennia orbits. An error later corrected by cross-referencing geostationary satellites. In, ex in explaining the factors leading to his decision, Petrov cited his belief uh, and training that any U.S. first strike would be massive. So five missiles seemed a very illogical start. Okay, that makes sense. Right, right. In addition, the launch detection system was new and, in his view, not wholly trustworthy. So while ground radar had failed to pick up corroborating evidence, even after several minutes of the false alarm. So he was truly taking everything into account responsibly as okay. the majority, 99.999% of human beings would not in this situation. Yeah. I, I think part of me, like I know it's his job to like, hey, alert people that missiles are coming and that the end of the world is happening but i think part of me would just be like no one needs to know <laughs> i like if it's happening just let it go just just yeah. kick your feet up like, take take the snickers out of your pocket and just crack enjoy. a beer i don't <laughs> no one needs to know it's better that way anyway <laughs> i mean you're gonna die yeah Regardless of if your country gets missiles off or not, you're dead. Yeah. Call your wife, your daughter, your best friend from high school. I don't know. Say, hey, wanted you to know I love you. See ya. And like, drink a beer and turn on scrubs. I don't like that's. <laughs> I'd put on some. That's what I would do. Some metal music. Yeah, that's or that. Yeah. Definitely have to do that. Yeah. Get a lawn chair, sit it on the roof. Yeah, at least watch it happen. Wow. <laughs> Watch everything burn to the ground. Yeah. Well, I guess you wouldn't watch it because you'd be gone in an instant. But yeah. 
So he received both praise and reprimand due to this incident. Reprimand, excuse me. Uh, he was initially praised by his supporters uh, following some intense questioning. This is what's silly. The reprimand came from his paperwork file. So oh. what, what happened was there's this thing. What's it called? It's called the... I bring it up later, but there's this little logbook as the mm -hmm. operator that you're supposed to be writing in as a thing is going down. Yeah. Well, as he's observing potential nuclear missiles flying at Russia, he said that he, you know, had a phone in one hand and he had a pen in the other trying to like take notes and do all these <laughs> other things. So, oh, here it is. It's called the military diary. Oh, that was a very easy word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I knew it was like army diary or military book or something like that. So, yeah, he was just like, I I what was I supposed to do? <laughs> so so they they knocked him for that. They weren't too happy. So it was like I mean, a, a technicality for saving the world. Most of the time, paperwork is what gets people. Well, and another thing, too, why he wasn't just openly rewarded for his actions, because everybody knew that he saved the world. Yeah. Was by honoring him, they would have proven and agreed that they're fancy early detection system was faulty yeah. and so the people that designed said early detection system would have to be punished for it yeah and he didn't follow protocol and he didn't follow protocol yeah. so this was kind of just rushed under the rug and then what's yeah. even crazier is the rest of the world had no idea this happened yeah. until years later when the ussr dissolved that's insane yeah so he ended up leaving the military in 1984, and he actually went to work with the people who developed the early warning system. Oh. <laughs> so he went to go work for that company. Nice. He ended up dying on May 19th of 2017, so he had a decent life. Yeah, um, and he actually ended up receiving a lot of rewards in his life. So he really, he received some of them while he was still alive, and then he also... Received a couple of impossible So, I'll give you a link to the Wikipedia so you can read all of his rewards because he received. So, did anybody else monitor these things? Was he the only person? No. So, and what oh. I understand too is he could not individually have ordered a nuclear strike on anybody. Okay. There was just this whole ladder of people needing to verify, and he mm -hmm. was a rung on that ladder. And the chain up to the per or the people that had the keys to launch mm -hmm. a strike, it just never got to them because he was like, no. Okay. So the verification See, just... system worked, even though <laughs> he it was designed not to work, which is kind of okay. Weird. I was just imagining like he was the only person that saw it, or like was just watching these monitors. Like I wouldn't even write that down. I'm like, eh. <laughs> At this point, like. It's like, we're going no down, one, folks. Like, I'm going to go full force in the no one needs to know camp. <laughs> like, Just undo your pants and just kick yeah. up and but like, <laughs> just it, get comfortable. If he's, wrong, if he's wrong, then nobody, like, it doesn't matter. They're all dead. But if he's right, he didn't follow protocol and he didn't, like, just don't write that shit down. Right. <laughs> like, Well, and, and also yeah. there's something in the back of your head, like, okay. Mm -hmm. If I let this through and it's wrong, yeah. how many people are going to die? Yeah. And with the amount of nukes that both countries had, it would have been mm -hmm. everybody. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, I, hats off to this dude. Yeah, good job. Stanislav Petrov, people. You better put up a picture of him in your house and thank him every day. Set up an altar. Set up an altar. <laughs> like Kim Jong-un. Yuck. So, potential apocalypse number two. Okay, let's hear it. So we're going to flash back to the 60s. So giving a little right. context into what we're getting into, on October 14th of 1962, a U-2 spy plane did a flyover of Cuba and saw medium-range missile systems being installed. That was a big problem, if you can imagine. But this isn't about the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is what that led to, but it's about a particular okay. instance that took place because of the Cuban Missile Okay. So our people were where they were because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. All right. So this story is about a man named, by the time he was out of the military, is Vice Admiral Vasily and Androvich Arkhipov. Okay. So he served in the Soviet Navy between 1945 uh, up until the 80s. So he was born into a peasant family in a town near Moscow on January 20th of 1926. And then he served in World War II aboard a minesweeper in the Pacific, which had to have been miserable. And then he yeah. transferred to the Caspian Hired Naval School and graduated in 1947. After graduation, he served on service boats in the Black Sea Fleet, the, Nor uh, the Northern Fleet, excuse me, and the Baltic Fleet. And when I say service boats, they were submarines. Okay. So before I get into our main event, I'm going to uh, go into what I call a proving incident for Arkhipov, which he held some acclaim and he was revered in the military for this particular incident. And there's a movie about this. Okay. So uh, in July of 1961, he was made deputy commander, uh, so executive officer, of a brand spanking new hotel-class ballistic missile submarine called K-19. They were doing basic exercises when the reactor coolant system developed a very bad leak. So Ooh. when you're on a nuclear sub, that is something you do not want to hear. Yeah, no, no. To make things worse, the radiation affected the radios, so they were unable to report this to anybody. Uh-oh. Um, and the crew had to come up with a solution to just avoid a nuclear meltdown, because that wouldn't be good for anybody. Yeah. This forced them to work in highly irradiated conditions, but they were able to eventually come up with a solution to fix it. However, the men were highly irradiated afterwards. Yeah, like how sick did they get? Uh, we'll get into that. Yeah. So the entire engineer crew and their officer died within a month. And then 15 more sailors would die over the next two years. Um, and then a lot of people think that this instance contributed to Arkhipov's death in 98. Oh, okay. So he actually lived fairly long, considering. But that's not what we're here for. So on October 27th of 1962, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, 11 U.S. Navy destroyers and aircraft carrier, and the aircraft carrier, excuse me, USS Randolph, located Arkhipov's sub near Cuba. So they were out in international waters near Cuba. This was a diesel sub. This was not a nuclear sub this time. 
So even though they were in international waters, the Navy was like, nope, and started dropping non-lethal death charges to force them up. Uh, Okay. So they can um, better identify them. So instead of coming up, the sub went down. So they kept diving more in order to get out of range of the depth charges because when you're mm-hmm. in a nuclear or a, not a nuclear sub, a submarine, any kind of sub, depth charges are probably very scary. So what's kind of crazier about this is the U.S. Navy didn't realize that Arkhipov sub had a nuclear torpedo on it. Oh. So they were packing. So they kept diving to hide, and the problem with this was it they dove so deep they were out of radio contact, so they couldn't okay. again reach Moscow and come up with some sort of orders or plans or anything. So they mm. were completely cut off, being bombarded with depth charges during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh-oh. They had no idea if they were at war, and um, and due to the depth charges, they had no evidence against it. Oh yeah. So you have you have a Russian sub, international waters, armed with a nuclear warhead, being bombed. Yeah. A guy named Valentin Grigoryevich. No, that I just completely messed that one up. I'm gonna yeah, skip that, that word. Valentin Savitsky is what I'm gonna call him. He was the captain of the sub. And you just gave him a new name, or no, his, his middle name is the one oh. I, I was messing up. <laughs> I was like, you can't just make up somebody's name. This is history. Grigorievich. Yeah, it's Grigorievich. I was right. Okay. He was the captain of the sub. And he was convinced they were at war. So he wanted to launch the torpedo. What's really, really lovely about the situation is this particular sub had a very unique command structure. So in order to launch the torpedo on a normal submarine, the captain had to get permission from what they called the political officer. Okay. This sub was unique because in order to launch their torpedo, they had to get three officers to approve. Okay. And these officers were Arkhipov, Savitsky, mm-hmm. and then the political officer's name was Iman Simonovich Maslinikov. Nice. Wow. You got it. <clears throat> Nailed it. Yes. What was unique about this is is because Arkhipov was the flotilla commodore. So he was a heavy hitter at the time. All right. And he not only had command over this sub, he just commanded the entire flotilla of subs. This wasn't the only sub in the area at the time with a nuclear torpedo. So that's that. So why would that be? Right. So the entire flotilla that Arkhipov was in charge of had all of these. And so... um, the crew are the the two officers required his um his approval as well okay and, and thank goodness because he refused to launch the other two guys apparently were all for it they were screaming at him they were saying like you have to do this world's gonna end blah 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 blah, blah. and Arkhipov was just like no and so because of his past exploits with the k-19 incident and such like he gar- garnered this reputation throughout the ranks and that kind of gave him the street cred to calm these two dudes down yeah, and to push them past the situation. And so eventually he convinced Savitsky to actually surface to get radio orders from home, and then they just beboffed back to Russia. So okay. this, this incredibly tense situation where two-thirds of the people <laughs> who had the authority to launch a nuclear strike really close to Florida yeah, just ended in them turning around and going back. 
That's a long drive. That's a very long drive. So they were ultimately chewed out for exposing themselves to the to the, <laughs> to the U.S. At, like for surfacing. But Arkhipov would go on to serve with honors, and he actually retired a rear admiral. He died on August 19th of 1998 of kidney cancer. And as oh. I said, his K-19 episode is said to yeah. probably contributed to that. I'm sure it did. But after death, he's recognized widely for saving the world. So, folks, if you Google Cold War, save the world, these two men come up. And Okay. You know, while there are plenty of, you know, nice and fluffy stories I could have told for humanity being saved, you know, these are two guys that you don't hear about, and they literally mm-hmm. saved the world, and yeah. they had a, enough sense of humanity to not jump to conclusions when, yeah. obviously, they were both in situations where it would have been justified to do something crazy. That's fair. So. I, this just reminds me of... Do you remember that really old YouTube video that like the end of the world? No. Oh, it's <laughs> it's really dumb, but it's about like about like a nuclear war, but they it, you I bet you've seen it, but it's it's pretty funny. It's like a guy with a weird voiceover and he's like, "Okay." <laughs> you you'll have to listen to it. And the French are like, "But we're late tired and they don't want to like get part of it." But there's, yeah. And okay. Australia's like WTF, mate. I see it. Mm-hmm. I know. I I know the creator, albino yeah. black sheep, but I don't know. I, I can't don't... believe you. I think you've probably seen it, and you just it's not ringing any bells. But it's probably. like one of the classic YouTube videos that when YouTube was brand new. It looks like I was into like salad fingers at the time. Yeah. Or maybe rejected cartoons and this one okay. just slipped through the cracks. That's fair. I think you'll laugh at it. it it's pretty good. But uh, it, it looks like something like Yeah. But just thinking of these bombs being threatened just reminded me of that the whole time. And I was going to make jokes and I'm glad I didn't because you wouldn't have gotten them. So. Yeah. That just would have gone right over my head. Yeah. That and you would have looked like a fool. Or I would have just been really mad at you. Well, I mean, you can't be mad at me for an unknown unknown. I feel like you should know this video. That's not fair. I feel like you should, though. Because if I were to do a survey of 27-year-old to 35-year-old people... Actually, let's be real. Trey probably hasn't seen it either because he breaks my heart on a regular basis about things like this, so... Well, I can see Trey not Yeah. He doesn't seem like a very YouTube-y, deep-dive kind of dude. Yeah. Well, at least for videos like this. Yeah. He'd be he's watching too busy like, playing basketball. I was going to say, he'd be watching, like, old KU highlights. <laughs> Gotta watch Wilt Chamberlain. <laughs> yeah, so watch that video. You'll like it. If anybody else that's listening to this hasn't seen it, it's really dumb, but it's, like, funny dumb. It's called The End of the World. It's like an OG YouTube video. All right. Well, I, I have it pulled up. It said 12 years ago. Is when it was yeah. Like OG. I'm not kidding. Okay. All right. So mine is about a place in Canada. And well, I'm really excited to tell you the story. So I actually got my idea 
went from a Broadway musical. And you may not have heard from, heard about it because it's kind of like a lesser known musical okay. called Come From Away. Yeah, I haven't heard it. Okay. So the music in this is like absolutely beautiful. And it, I went, so Trey's aunt has like season tickets to the Kansas City Broadway thing. And she took me to this musical once and she was like, hey, I just have an extra one. Do you want to come? And I hadn't heard of it. I knew nothing about it. And I like went with no expectations. I didn't even know what it was about. And I was just like, all right, let's go. I like going to musicals. Let's do it. And it like blew my mind. So it has maybe like 20 people in the whole cast and each of them play like two roles, Mm -hmm. sometimes three. Like this would be one of the hardest musicals to ever be in because they're all just like on stage the whole time and there's not much of a set. It's crazy, but so good. And so this gave me the idea because it's about this event. Okay. Okay. And actually, they use a lot of, like, true stories from the event in it and that kind of thing and, like, base it on some of the quote-unquote characters that are part of this. So, if you haven't heard of it and you like musicals, look up Come From Away. It's great. Okay. And it definitely will, like, solidify in your mind that Canadians are for sure the nicest people on the planet. It's it's a fact. It's I solidified. Know. I happen to know a very mean Canadian well, screw him. <laughs> okay. Have you ever heard of the town of Gander? No. All right. So Gander is a really small town in the northeastern corner of the island of Newfoundland. Okay. And in 2016, which was the most recent statistics I could find, it had about 11,688 people living there. Mm-hmm. And it said that, like, if growth rate stayed steady that they'd have about 13,000 ish people there now. But this story takes place in 2001 and there were only about 10 to 11,000 people living there. And like this city is so small that it has like six traffic lights. Very, very small. Hey, at least they have traffic lights though. Yeah. I mean, I've have been in places that have had one or zero. So, or a stop sign. Yeah. Yeah. So this town used to be fairly, I want to say popular, but more well-traveled, I guess, because they had a airport there. They still have the airport there. It was called Gander International Airport that was a very, very popular and like big airport because it was used as a transatlantic fueling station. Okay, So it was kind of an, like, I don't know if it was necessarily the halfway point, but like a good route on the stop between Europe and New York or Europe and the U.S. and that kind of stuff is kind of like a point where people could stop and refuel their planes. And in 1935, they had like found that, sorry, I just hit my mic. Sorry about that. Um, they, they'd picked this to build the airport there to make it a good stop. And then in World War II, it became like kind of a military base and they used it to be like a halfway point between Europe and the U S to like send planes out. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. So, and during that time they had about 10,000 U S great Britain and Canadian military members living there. And they, during world war two had about 20,000 military bombers go through this airport. That's crazy. So it was a very big airport. Well used that kind of thing. But after the war, the military, 
housing areas kind of dispersed and the city kind of moved away from the airport and it was all kind of like abandoned a little bit, not quote unquote abandoned, but they kind of just like filed away, like moved out more. Yeah. yeah. But the airport was still used pretty often as the refueling station because it was known as the crossroads of the world. And then as planes became bigger and they could hold more fuel, the airport was used less and less because they didn't need to stop and refuel in the middle. They could make the whole flight, right? So I like read somewhere that all the, like as you become like a commercial pilot who does like transatlantic flights, you have to learn about this airport and know where it is because it's an emergency stopping place where everybody knows like if I have something that's happening while I'm in the, like above the ocean coming Mm -hmm. from Europe or like that kind of stuff, I will stop at this airport because it's that good emergency landing spot. Yeah. But most people like it, it also said like most pilots, we all know what it is, but we won't go there our entire career. We'll never stop at this airport. And just kind of like the rip cord form in case something bad. Yeah. So they have to know it, but it's just like, in emergency purposes only. Well, in 2001, it was used for that emergency purpose. Oh, snap. I'm excited. So, well, it's we're going to talk about a day that kind of sucked. Oh, uh, wait, never mind. Kind of, never mind. I, I just, really, really I just, sucked. I just put the math together. I'm not excited anymore. Yeah, so the date that this town became kind of known Trip. as the most generous town in the world was a date that all of us know Mm -hmm. september 11th 2001 so horrible horrible day and now i bet you're picturing like where you are like where what you were doing that day and everything because that's what you do Mm -hmm. when you hear that day and that like image is probably permanently burned into your head right yep but for people of gander their memories are a little different because, of course, it included that horrible, terrible action. But they also did kind of some cool stuff because you'll see in just a second. So after the Twin Towers were hit, all of the North Atlantic airspace was completely closed down, right? No flights could come in or go out, especially not to New York or D.C. or anything like that. Right. Because, obviously. Mm-hmm. So all of the flights were canceled or grounded that day in Canada and the U.S., and it was just, like, crazy chaos, pandemonium. I'm sure it was horrible to be flying and scary. Oh, yeah. So if you were, like, say you're on a plane from Germany and you had left home eight hours ago and you've been flying overnight and you're exhausted and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm almost to New York. I can't wait to get there, go to sleep, get jet, like, get over my jet lag, all of that. And you're almost over, and then you hear, like, ding, ding. And immediately, like, you hear the captain go over, and you're like, okay, cool. I'll put my tray table up. We're going to be landing. We're almost there. And instead, he goes, all right, so um, we have a bit of an issue, and we have to just emergency land at this at Gander International Airport in New Finland, Canada. Like, uh, and that was, like, a thing that 38 flights 38? Mm-hmm. Wow. So they like, we don't know how long, we don't know what's going on. We don't know how long we're going to be there. 
and we hopefully it won't be too long and thank you for your patience we'll see you we'll see you when we get to gander right right and this was in 2001 so this is before smartphones this is before all of that mm -hmm. right so that's chaotic and terrible but also imagine you're a mayor of a really small town in canada and you wake up and you're just like making your coffee and you've been arguing on the phone most of the morning because the school bus drivers are all on strike. <laughs> and you think that's just going to take up your whole day. And you're like, oh, I just want the kids to get to school and strikes are annoying and all of that. And then you get a phone call that's like, hey, there's been a terrorist attack in New York City. Airspace is closed and we're diverting all of the flights to Gander. And then you're like, how many flights? Oh, just 38. <laughs> So, yeah, it doesn't sound great, right? Chaos. Chaos everywhere. So, luckily, because Gander was such a large airport at the, like, back in the day, they had enough room on the runway uh -huh. for 38 commercial flights and four military flights to be di diverted there. But, like, it's a town with six stoplights, right? So, yeah. between Gander and, like, small towns around it, there's one called Appleton, that had like 600 people living there, very <laughs> small. They only had about 500 hotel rooms. Yeah. Yeah. So 38 commercial flights, four military flights, transatlantic flights. So these are big planes. Uh -huh. How many people do you think were suddenly stranded in this town? Wait, so 38. Mm -hmm. um, give me a second. Calculator. Uh, let's say an average, let's say 14,225. All right, you're a little high. There are 6,500 people, uh, a little bit over 6,500. I was saying about 300 person flights, but those would be massive yeah. airplanes. Those are big flights. Um, and these are from all over the place. So most, a lot of them didn't speak English. Like, and they're all exhausted, right? Did food come into play here? You'll hear. Okay. Get to it. Just, just curious. So I read somewhere that this influx of people was more visitors than the town typically had in over a month <laughs> on one day. Oh, yeah. Uh, so originally, they didn't know how long they were going to be there, right? They didn't mm -hmm. have a ton of information. Uh, so they didn't unload the planes for hours. Like, some people were trapped on these planes for 31 hours. Oh, no! Like, like not on that runway, but, like, in, like from the flight when they took off. Oh, okay. They, were, they had been stuck on their plane for 31 hours. I mean, that's still on the runway a very long time. Yeah. And they had no idea what was going on. Oh. So they're just, like, true. sitting there looking out their window, like, why can't we leave? And they mm -hmm. just see rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of planes. That's crazy. And everyone's just sitting there. The planes were there for so long that they eventually started to sink because the runway had been not used as much and the weight from the planes and the heat started to sink the runways. Uh, that is insane. Yeah. So like the Gander police constable, his name was Oz Fudge. He <laughs> said, yeah, that's a great name, right? Um, he said, I mentioned this is before smartphones. They didn't have any idea what was going on. And he goes, I remember the gasps when I finally told them what was happening. 
When the passengers finally saw the destruction, you hear this, huh, when the plane hits the towers. That sound I hear all the time and the shock that's on their faces as they're standing there looking at this TV and the look of loss on their faces. I'll live with that for the rest of my life. I just Googled the airport on 9-11. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs to do that. It's insane. Mm-hmm. Like just literally rows and rows and rows of planes. Yeah. And it's like mm-hmm. down the entire runway. And yeah. run- runways are long. Yeah. By design. That is mm-hmm. insane. Mm-hmm. So not like these people and because they, there's like security risks, right? They wouldn't let them take their luggage off the planes. So after they've been stuck on these planes for upwards to 31 hours, you like desperately just want to sleep and take a shower, Mm -hmm. but you have nowhere to stay. Yep. You have no idea when you're going to leave. You have no clothes and you also don't have your medications. Oh yeah. If you checked your luggage, like, I couldn't even imagine the feeling of, like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And could you imagine, like, if you didn't speak English? Oh, yeah, that would be even worse. That yeah. had to have been scary. I mean, you don't know if you're being kidnapped. <laughs> yeah, or, like, because it was 9-11, it was a terrorist attack because in, like, Muslim extremists. Like, could you imagine being Muslim? Oh, yeah. Right now? Like, and not speaking English? <laughs> like... I couldn't even imagine. So, also, there weren't just people on these planes. There were animals on the planes. Oh, no. So, Bonnie Harris, who was Gander's animal welfare manager, was like, when the planes first landed, she immediately was like, how many animals are there? What do I need to do? And Uh they were like, no, there's none. And she was like, BS, there's definitely animals on this plane. Right. And she went down to the runway and like bothered them until they finally let her go through. And she found 11 dogs and eight cats and a pair of Bonobo chimpanzees that were headed to. Yeah. They were like taking them to a zoo in Ohio. Oh, And so they were transferring them, and there were, like, these two chimpanzees that they were like, oh, dear, now what do I do with that? Well, but they would have just let all those things die. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Uh Chimpanzees, that had to have sucked to see. Yeah. Like, really? It it actually gets worse, but I'll get to that in a second. Um, So Gander's mayor, his name was Claude Elliott, immediately declared a state of emergency after he got that phone call. It was like, okay. That's a heads-up play right there. Yeah. And he immediately, like, he contacted towns in the area, too. And all of these people got to work. They were just like, all right, what do we do? And so these planes are still packed with passengers. They sat at the airport for hours. And the town was just, like, getting everything together for them. Mm -hmm. They made, volunteers made makeshift shelters out of every school, gym, community center, church, camp, any place that they could, like, put a plane load of people they were making into a shelter and people still ended up opening their homes to strangers, like, and letting them stay there. That's amazing. And And they started, yeah, they started calling these people, the plane people. (laughs) So like they refer to them as the plane people. It's very cute. The 500 hotel rooms were reserved for the pilots and the crews. Mm -hmm. And these volunteers literally worked day and night and did not go home. The mayor said he didn't go home for five days. That's incredible. 
So these people didn't have luggage, right? They couldn't get their luggage. So people just started donating clothes and toiletries and just like started making food. They had so much food that the grocery stores were empty. I was going to say that could not be sustainable for a place like that. And they had to make a hockey rink into a giant refrigerator. <laughs> Canada. I mean, like, I was going to say, like, that sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, it's smart. No, that's super but, smart. Yeah. I mean, wow. They The bus drivers actually ended their strike to help prepare the town and to shuttle people from the airport. Okay. So with that, I remember this commercial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where I think it was an Applebee's commercial where they're closing up the Applebee's and they're listening to some state game or whatnot and the team loses and they get to Applebee's and the doors are closed and they're all upset and the servers are like, I could stay on, which folks, this would never happen in a million years. Doesn't matter how sad and pathetic you look. If you go to a restaurant after it closes and are looking in like all whatever, people will be hiding behind stuff to, <laughs> to avoid eye contact. Especially at Applebee's. I've worked there. It, and no, Applebee's is not the restaurant that Jared and I met each other at. But yeah, but anyway, it just, when the bus drivers actually came back to help the people in your story, mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, that's an instance where people actually would do something yeah. inconvenient for them. They but not literally like, but not like that commercial. Not, yeah, not at Applebee's. <laughs> no. No. I, anyway. Servers are bitter and tired and drunk. They don't. <laughs> and rightfully so. Yeah. Because consumers I... are terrible people. Yes. Anyway, especially at a place like that. A casual corporate dining restaurant. restaurant. Yeah. Corporate casual dining. Okay. Anyway, so here's a quote from a lady named Bula. A Bula. Bula, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, her, she said, we knew that people would need food, so I just started making sandwiches. There's a saying here in Newfoundland, we feed you when you're sad, and we feed you when you're happy. That, like, just (laughs) sign me up. Yeah. And then, (laughs) Linda Sweetapple, who was a business manager. And they all sound like storybook people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She said, we did not know how we would... Sorry, we did not know how we would be affected if these people were staying, if the people who were coming were good people or not so good people. We just knew that we had to make room for them and take care of them. They were here and they needed our help. Wow. Yeah. Hear that, folks? Yeah. Like, that's seriously. Um, quit quit so, judging people and just help some people sometimes. Yeah. The I'm, town police officer, like, he started making quick phone calls when he found out, like, all this was happening. And within four hours, they had volunteers at the elementary school moving a thousand desks. They disinfected the entire elementary school and they set up 800 beds as an emergency shelter. People started donating so many things that they had to like call and ask them to stop for some of them. Like they donated so much toilet paper. They literally had to ask the local news reporter to be like, Hey, can you call off that request? We don't need any more toilet paper. <laughs> and then you, and you, then, you go to the, to the country, to the South and people are like, I'm not giving you a handout. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And hoard the toilet paper. Right. <laughs> yeah. So when like one of the passengers who was like during these five days, so they were here for, they were there for five days. One of the passengers that was staying there, like, expressed, like, I've never had moose before. 
And the townspeople heard like heard that, and twenty pounds of meat showed up within hours. <laughs> they all went out and killed a moose. Yeah, they're like, "Oh, you want to taste a moose? Here you go." Like, be right so back. Shop owners were just like letting people come in and take what they needed. People were like letting people like them come into their house and shower and sleep. They were t- like. As the days went on, they're like, oh, what do you want to do? Let's go, let's go see some sightseeing. We'll go to tours. Like, we'll get, we'll take, we'll start barbecues. We're gonna make some music. We're gonna do games. What can I help you? Please tell me this town got compensated for all this. I'll get to it. Okay. And they would like literally took people moose hunting and berry picking. If people were like walking down the street, if they saw like one of these plain people walking down the street, they would stop and be like, Do you need a ride somewhere? Like what, what do you want to do? Let me show you around. Let me help you. I like almost want to cry listening to this. <laughs> I needed this story. Yeah. Uh, because people didn't have medications, the pharmacists in the town worked like around the clock. They called dozens of countries to fill prescriptions for people <laughs> and just like, let me get you your meds. Uh-huh. Um, there were, of course, smokers on boards on board and they weren't able to smoke some of them for 31 hours oh no uh, yeah i mean like, but... you poor smoker can't smoke for 21 <laughs> hours how so, did they ever survive they said like there was a quote that said we bought every bit of nicotine gum that was in town so they could just like give people they could just <laughs> so they could just rage chew <laughs> yeah they were probably they... so mean <laughs> And they like they ran out of underwear in the town because they people were like, that's one thing you don't want to get donated. Right. Here's my used underwear. So like the stores in town ran out of underwear. They trucked underwear from a city that was 207 miles away so that people could have underwear. So in total, the plain people came from 95 different countries. Wow. They like, and just imagine, so 95 different countries, all different customs and like religious practices. So they had to like learn how to make kosher meals and halal meals. And they did it. They had (laughs) to find places for worship and prayer and everything. And they did their best to try to accommodate these people for five days. That last part really almost got some waterworks going. Yeah. And they wouldn't let anybody help them. Which I'll get to that as well. Like in the come from away, they there was like a, I don't know how true this was or not. There was like one of the guys, he like didn't speak English and he was from a Muslim country of some sort. So people were like weird with him at first. So this is just from the musical. I don't know if this really happened, but mm-hmm. they're weird with him at first. And he kept like asking to help cook. And they're like, no, no, no. And like pushing him away. And he like wasn't eating. And so they were like, oh, what is this guy up to? And then they found out later that he was like a professional cook. Oh. Like he was a chef and that he like wanted to make kosher and halal food for people so that they could like actually eat. And oh, they very like cool. and he taught them how to make stuff. But like I said, that's from the musical. It's probably based on something that's true. Because right. the people who wrote the musical went to Gander and like just interviewed people for days to get as much as they could for it. It's so awesome. So the town veterinarian took care of all the animals on the plane. And this also happens in the musical. The veterinarian learns that like one of the chimps was pregnant and lost her baby because of all the stress. And everything. Oh, no. Yeah, that literally happened. So because of being stuck on the plane and the stress, like lost the baby. But 
the same chimp was able to have a healthy baby two years later, and the Columbus Zoo named it after Gander. Ah. And sent them a letter later with a picture of it and said, like, here's your chimpanzee. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, Mr. Ozfudge, our cute little sheriff or whatever, he said, what people needed most was reassurance. We wanted to go to each person and put our arms around them and say, you're safe, you're okay, because we've got you. And then in Appleton, the mayor, his last name is Derm, he said, everybody was doing what they could. The plain people needed food and a place to sleep. They needed some assurance, compassion, love, and counseling. They needed someone to give them a warm hug. So all of these people, like, and Appleton only had 680 residents, and they cared for 90 of the passengers for five days. Man. And the mayor took in, like, I want to say three people in his own home and just, like, let them stay there. Ah, this is incredible. Yeah, so two days into the crisis... Mayor Elliot for, from Gander was at what they called the Royal Canadian Legion Hall, and they started initiating all of these passengers as honorary Newfoundlanders. And they have apparently this ritual there. It's called screeching in. Mm-hmm. You have to wear like a yellow, one of those like, they call it like the So Westerners hat. Like, I, it's hard to explain. I, it kind of looks like a rain hat. Mm-hmm. And you have to eat hard bread and a pickled bologna and then kiss a cod on the lips and then drink their local rum called Screech while onlookers bang an, what they call an ugly stick covered in beer bottle caps. Huh. So it's like a, this ritual that they have to become a Newfoundlander and they like literally bang this stick as you drink Screech and kiss a cod. Here's a question I... I honestly don't know like is it pronounced mm-hmm. newfoundland despite the spelling mm-hmm. oh interesting yeah i mean and it all uh, makes sense but yeah it's yeah kind of weird okay yeah and elliot was quoted to say we started off with seven thousand strangers but we finished with seven thousand family members Aww. oh so sweet right so some of the passengers were like trying to pay them they were like hey can i pay you for the food and the hospitality and they wouldn't accept Uh anything wouldn't accept any money they wouldn't accept any help anything and they just like took care of these people and pretty much built families so a lot of the passengers still keep in touch with the families i mean you have to (laughs) like how could you not and later a bunch of the passengers got together and donated thousands of dollars to the town thank you that's awesome and they one of the passengers there was like I think it was a husband and wife. Let me see if I can find it. I'm going to scroll down. Oh, it was just a guy. It said, Kevin Tur- Turitz, six, one of the passengers who got stuck, 16 years after his Air France flight. This is copy and paste. So sorry. Mm-hmm. After his Air France flight from Paris to New York diverted to Gander, he authored a book called Channel of Peace, Stranded in Gander on 9-11, and he is the force behind the pay it forward 9-11 movement. And it urges everyone to perform acts of kindness each year. And so he like went through, went, he like wrote a book about it and he like started a movement to like pay it forward. Is that and where that movie came from? Was, was it inspired from his book? I honestly am not sure. I could imagine. I'll, I'll check while you. Present. Okay. So. On 
Canada accepted more than 200 planes that were forced to reroute when the U.S. closed its airspace. Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Vancouver accepted the most planes, and then Gander and St. John's, which is the town that was 120 miles away, accepted a a bunch of planes as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know how substantiated this is, but one of the people in the articles that I was quoting said that they found out later that the government may have diverted the planes to less populated areas just in case there were bombs on the plane. They wanted to minimize the number of casualties. I mean... I get it, but like... Ugh! Yeah. And luckily there wasn't anything and they were just very, very awesome, amazing giving people. Right. The Canadian... Department of Transport said, like, any related to, like, re- any decision related to this diversion was just to find an alternate airport. It wasn't because of anything like that, but they have to say that. So they were like, we looked at the number of passengers, what airports could handle that type of plane, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, but you never know. Right. So I'm going to end with a couple of quotes, because right? they, they were just so, all of these quotes have been so great. So... One of the people, it was a husband and wife, their last name is Stuber, got stuck and stuck out there. And they said, the whole community is the poster child for how hospitality and just a sheer act of humanity should be because they had such a high level of open arms and come in and welcome. Here's my house. Said, this just absolutely floored me. Mm-hmm. And quoting people from Gander. So Diane Davis, who was a teacher who helped pretty much, she was one of the people who kind of manned the whole elementary school thing that I said, Mm -hmm. where they made 800 beds said, everyone looks at us and says that this is, that's an amazing thing that you did. And the bottom line is I don't think it was an amazing thing. I think it was the right thing you do. Right. And Claude Elliott, the mayor said, what we consider the most simple thing in life is to help people. You're not supposed to look at people's color, their religion, their sexual orientation. You just look at them as people. And that is my awesome, amazing story of Gander, Newfoundland. That's incredible. Yeah, they. It's awesome. The musical is amazing. It tells like it. It's one of those like it makes you want to cry the whole time because it's so inspiring and like. The music's just really good. And then if you're a musical nerd like me, you watch it and you're like, oh my gosh, these actors have so much stamina and they're amazing. <laughs> so, Well, and what's kind of unfortunate about listening to that story is it seems so unbelievable. Yeah. That's the sad part. Like, Yeah, especially... And the fact that it's getting me emotional because like, I can't even fathom something like that. Yeah. But I can fathom some pretty terrible things. That's yeah. very sad. And I think... 2020 was a rough year. 2021 starting out kind of rough. And especially in the U.S., we got to see a lot of the worst of humanity this year. Still seeing it. And we're still seeing it. And I feel like we needed a story that showed us the best of humanity. A spiritual spiritual palate cleanse. Yeah. So I was so excited to tell the story. I love this story and Canada's great 
and so nice, except for apparently the one guy that Jared knows, but screw him. <laughs> uh, I hope he never stumbles upon this show because he knows who I am. Uh, well, don't be a jerk. Uh, well, no, he's he's actually my buddy. He likes Oh, okay. Me. He's just mean to oh. everyone else. Okay, well, then stop being a jerk to everybody else all the time. Right. And Gail, thank you for being our favorite Canadian listener and sharing our podcast all over and getting us more of a following. Hopefully you guys enjoy this story. Thanks, um, Gail. And if you do yeah. find yourself liking the podcast, please tell people about it. Um, yeah. we, we'd really appreciate it. We like doing this and we want to mm-hmm. keep doing it. So. Yeah. And we're going to be that those podcast people now that's like, if you like us, please subscribe and rate. Give us five stars on iTunes because that's how we get noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how iTunes works. So the more downloads, the more subscriptions, and the more reviews we get helps us like get noticed and will just help us get better. So And talk yeah. to us. Email us. Tweet yeah. us. Instagram. I don't know what that yeah. format is called when you do the Insta- action to the other person. Yeah, I don't know what that is. Um, when you gram somebody. But, like, talk yeah. to us. I mean, we're, we're approachable, nice people. Slide we, into our DMs. I think that's what that is. Oh, that sounds dirty <laughs> for some reason, but maybe because I'm. I mean, it, it's supposed to. Yeah. yeah. Well, but yeah, talk to us. We'd love yeah. to hear from you. Like, I can't tell you how excited I was when I thought somebody actually emailed us today. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, yeah. folks. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with us and, and sticking with us and mm-hmm. and giving hopefully, us a shot. So. Hopefully, you got some faith in humanity restored a little bit and. If you are from this area and you have a cool story about it, send me an email. I want to hear your story. Please. About how all of this. And that our email is wildwildwhattf at gmail.com. And I want to hear all the, like, I want to hear your faith in humanity stories. I want to hear all of it. Right. Yeah. Everyone, everyone, give some inspiration. Probably even yeah. share a few. I think we um, all need it. I mean, we do need, like, we don't want to put our heads in the sand and pretend that this, the horrible stuff isn't happening because it's good for us to know and that kind of thing. But sometimes you need some uplifting things too. So, yeah. If you want to see some pictures of these things that, like, I'm going to post a bunch of pictures of people from Gander and that kind of stuff. I'm, if I can figure out the copyright things because they're great and they should all be known and celebrated. And our Instagram is Wild Wild What TF Podcast. And if you want to tweet at us and or read random facts that we post on Twitter, it's Wild Wild What TF at Twitter. So thanks, guys. See you next time. Have a good one. <laughs>